My intent today is to address the American people who have been watching these proceedings and are concerned about what they've seen in this chamber over the past two days. I believe the 20 members that have nominated an alternate candidate have expressed their concerns with leadership. And many of those concerns have been addressed and accepted by Leader McCarthy and this conference. America is tired of rhetoric and they want results. This isn't chaos. This is a constitutional republic at work. I'm a mom of four boys. I know what chaos and dysfunction looks like. This is actually a really beautiful thing to be here with all of my colleagues debating. This country needs a change. This country needs leadership that does not reflect this city that is badly broken. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. Welcome to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about how Congress works and doesn't work and why. In this episode, we examine the way leadership teams function in the House and Senate, how they attempt to shepherd bills to passage, and the ways they handle groups and individuals trying to push back against the leadership team's power. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller of Portland State University in amazing Portland, Oregon. Leadership in Congress has always been a lot like herding cats. This stems from the structure of the U.S. electoral system. While members of Congress are nearly all aligned with one of the two major political parties, their election to Congress occurs through the voters in their districts and home states, not through the parties themselves, as happens in other types of democratic systems. While benefiting from the brand attached to their party label, members of Congress must ultimately pay attention to what their constituents want, at least whatever group of constituents is key to their re-election prospects, as well as their main campaign donors and the influential people and groups that endorse them. And those key groups vary by state, by region, sometimes even between two adjacent districts. So members of Congress, while arriving with a party label and nominal loyalty to a leadership team they elect themselves, have multiple loyalties, potentially quite divided. In the past, parties had certain powerful tools at their disposal to ensure that elected members of Congress put party loyalty near the top of that list and acted in ways that align with the overall agenda of their party's leadership. The impact of those tools has eroded significantly in the 21st century, particularly since the Supreme Court's 2010 ruling in Citizens United that unleashed a torrent of campaign money outside the control of party leaders. Because a member's pathway to re-election is increasingly independent of their party's money, power, and influence, we've seen a greater and greater fragmentation of the party caucuses in both houses of Congress, particularly in the House of Representatives. The cats, in other words, have gotten even more diverse and unruly than they were before. In our first segment, Nigel Wilkerson takes us through the methods the leadership teams in both chambers use in their attempt to control the legislative process, further the party's legislative agenda, and strengthen their members' re-election prospects to safeguard future majorities. Take it away, Nigel. We've talked about the Rules Committee on this podcast already, but this powerful institution bears closest scrutiny, as does its correlate in the Senate, the Majority Leader's Office, which essentially does what the House Rules Committee does without having to deal with the pesky committee. 
These two mechanisms are different in their specific functioning, but both work towards the same ends. Controlling what legislation makes it onto the floor of each chamber, determining the contours of debate and amendment, ensuring that the right bills get passed, the wrong bills get defeated, all while trying to force members of the opposition party to take difficult votes and protecting their own members from same. Generally, in the House, the Speaker puts people on the Rules Committee who will do the leadership team's bidding. But in the present Congress, Speaker McCarthy had to dole out a bunch of Rules Committee seats to dissenters from the Freedom Caucus to win their votes in the prolonged Speaker battle at the beginning of the session. And this has weakened his control over this important tool of the leadership. This is, of course, one of the tugs of war that's constantly going on in Congress in multiple ways. Rank-and-file members, or leaders of caucus groups, or committee chairs, attempting to wrestle power away from the leadership team. Over the past 15 years, the process that we use has been dramatically broken. The voices that were sent here to equally, equally represent each of the 435 districts across this nation have become diminished. This, through the consolidation of power into the hands of the speaker and a fortunate few who happen to serve on the Rules Committee which control every aspect of legislation that travels through this body. The debate and the discussion has been all but eliminated, and the balance of us are left to vote yes or no. Those are our options. That is not equal representation, and that is what has led to the disintegration of the relationships that we see across this floor. In the old days, the way to have influence was gaining seniority and getting committee chairs. But since 1994, the legislative process is centered more around leadership-negotiated bills that get sent directly to the floor via the Rules Committee. A good example of this is the recently passed debt ceiling bill, which Speaker McCarthy negotiated with the White House, then sent directly to the Rules Committee, which sent it straight on to the floor for a vote. This has become the norm for important bills in recent decades. Sometimes even the entire annual budget is done this way, as with 2020's $1.4 trillion omnibus budget bill and 2022's $1.7 trillion omnibus budget bill, both negotiated by leadership in the House and Senate and passed without committee work, and during a lame duck session at that. Part of the reason bills are done this way is that it's now fairly common for the minority party to vote unanimously against anything important, so the majority party can't afford to lose too many votes of its own, or the bill will fail. And when a bill goes through the committee process, it might come out the other side in a way that's unpalatable to a number of members in the majority. So leadership takes a more central role in crafting legislation to ensure that it's palatable to as much of the caucus as possible. And there's a chicken and egg situation here too, which is that the minority party is more likely to vote unanimously against these bills since its members on the relevant committees weren't able to weigh in and add amendments that could win over some minority party support. Leadership isn't interested in crafting bipartisan bills like committees used to do, so the bills that get sent to the floor aren't designed in a way that would peel off minority members to get a bipartisan result, unless there's absolutely no way to get the majority party behind a bill. That's what happened with the must-pass debt ceiling raise that McCarthy and Biden negotiated. McCarthy knew he needed Democratic votes, so he had to craft the bill as a compromise in a way that's not typical. A win for Biden in bipartisanship, but unlikely to become the norm anytime soon. For legislation that's not must-pass, the majority leadership isn't going to want to wrangle minority party support. Which brings me to the most important tool of leadership, winning elections. The bigger the majority, the more of your own members can defect on any given bill, which makes crafting majority-only legislation much less treacherous. What leadership always wants is not just a majority, but the biggest majority possible. And that means constantly paying attention to the next election. This goes for both the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader. 
In the previous session of Congress, the Democrats had a slim majority in the House and a 50-50 Senate with a Democratic vice president to break ties in their favor. But any small group of House members and any single Democratic senator could derail a bill. When things are that tight, there's an almost impossible tightrope walk to be done to craft a bill that's not problematic for any tiny but decisive group of majority party members. One of the ways you get to a leadership position is by helping party members win elections, by raising money mostly, but also by recruiting good candidates, providing strategic support, and making sure incumbents don't have to take hard votes that might hurt them in the next election cycle. So the skill set is tied together. You get to leadership by helping your party win seats. And when you're in leadership, your job is easier or harder, depending on how wide or narrow your margin is. Speaker McCarthy's job this Congress would have been immensely easier had the Republicans taken a dozen more seats in the 2020 midterm election, nullifying the impact of the half dozen or so hardliners who made his job securing the speakership so difficult. And in the last session, Majority Leader Schumer's job would have been much easier if Democrats had 52 or 53 seats so that individual senators like Manchin and Cinema wouldn't be so important to passing bills. leadership teams in both houses of Congress are only two of the three central components in turning bills into law. The president, who wields the bill signing pen as well as the veto stamp, is the third. And it's here that the task of the various congressional leaders is potentially the most difficult. Obviously, if the president is from the same party that controls one or both houses of Congress, the relationship will be relatively smooth, though not necessarily entirely without disagreements. Upon Barack Obama's election, the new Democratic majority leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, stated that President Obama wasn't his boss. They were both leaders of separate branches of government and as such would have to work together. However, the challenges of working with the president from the other party are obviously far more significant and the threat of veto more realistic. So congressional leaders have to work not just to herd their caucus behind the party's sponsored bills, but also have to establish a working relationship with the president, something that different speakers of the House and Senate majority leaders have done with varying levels of success. The paradigm case of a good working relationship between a congressional leader and a president of the opposite party is the friendship and rivalry of President Ronald Reagan and Democratic Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill back in the 1980s. O'Neill was one of the longest serving speakers, reigning over the House for a full decade, the final six years of which overlapped with Reagan's first six years as president. While the two leaders had significant policy differences and very different political styles, they were able to work together remarkably well. The following segment comes from Reagan and Friends, a podcast produced by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. It was released in February 2023. Now, it's true that Tip and I have had our political disagreements. Sure, I said some things about Tip, and Tip said some things about me, but that's all history. And anyway, you know how it is. I forget. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know Tip and I have been kidding each other for some time now, and I hope you also know how much I hope this continues for many years to come. A little kidding is, after all, a sign of affection, the sort of things that friends do to each other. And Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful you have permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future, that singular honor, the honor of calling you my friend. Thomas Philip O'Neill Jr., known as Tip, was born on December 9, 1912. He was the third of three children born to Thomas Philip O'Neill and Rose Ann O'Neill in the Irish middle-class area of North Cambridge, Massachusetts, known at the time as Old Dublin. His mother died when he was only nine years old, and he was raised largely by a French-Canadian housekeeper until his father remarried when he was eight. How did he get his nickname? It was picked up during his childhood after the Canadian baseball player James Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill was educated in Roman Catholic schools, graduating in 1931 from high school, where he was captain of the basketball team. 
1936, he graduated from Boston College. Tip O'Neill first became active in politics at 15, campaigning for Al Smith in his 1928 presidential campaign. Four years later, he helped campaign for Franklin Roosevelt. As a senior at Boston College, O'Neill ran for a seat on the Cambridge City Council but lost, his first race and only electoral defeat. The campaign taught him the lesson that became his best-known quote, All politics is local. After graduating in 1936, O'Neill was elected at the age of 24 to the Massachusetts House of Representatives, and in 1949, he became the first Democratic Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives in its history. He remained in that post until 1952, when he ran for the United States House of Representatives from his home district and was elected to the congressional seat vacated by Senator-elect John F. Kennedy. He would be re-elected 16 more times. In 1971, O'Neill was appointed Majority Whip in the House, the number three position for the Democratic Party in the House. Two years later, in 1973, he was elected House Majority Leader and, in 1977, elected Speaker of the House. So, how did this fiercely liberal Democrat, one who once called Ronald Reagan the most ignorant man in the White House, become a friend of the 40th president? Well, in his autobiography in American Life, Ronald Reagan wrote, A few days after the 1981 inauguration, I invited Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, over to see me in the White House. He was full of Irish warmth, a great storyteller, and I liked him. After writing about disagreeing with each other almost immediately, President Reagan continued in his autobiography, we agreed that since we were going to have to do business with each other, we should try our best to get along. President Reagan shared another story in his autobiography about their friendship. He wrote, A month or so after the inauguration, we invited Tip O'Neill and his wife and a few other guests to have dinner with us in the family quarters. Nancy had already made a lot of progress in her efforts to renovate the second and third floors, and Tip said, You know, I've been in and out of this place for 27 years, and I have never seen it look as beautiful as this. It was a warm, pleasant evening, and a good time was had by all. When it was over, I was certain Tip and I had worn out Nancy and the other guests by trying to top each other with Irish stories passed on by our fathers. I also thought I'd made a friend. But a day or two later, I picked up a newspaper and read a story in which Tip really lit into me personally because he didn't like the economic recovery program and some of the cuts I proposed in spending. Some of his remarks were pretty nasty. I was not only surprised, but disappointed and also a little hurt. I called him and said, Tip, I just read in the paper what you said about me yesterday. I thought we had a pretty fine relationship going. Old buddy Tip said, that's politics. After six o'clock, we can be friends, but before six, it's politics. But they did truly become friends. Following President Reagan's assassination attempt in March of 1981, the President's then Chief of Staff, James Baker, made certain that Tip O'Neill was the very first politician to be granted access to Reagan's bedside as soon as Ronald Reagan's family had left the hospital room. Tip O'Neill entered the room, knelt at the President's bedside, and together they recited the 23rd Psalm. Then Tip O'Neill kissed the President on the forehead before leaving the hospital room. When President Reagan was re-elected, just as he had done in 1981, Tip O'Neill gifted the president an American flag which had flown over the U.S. Capitol on Inauguration Day. Once, when asked by a group of school children whether he liked being president, Ronald Reagan replied, There were many moments of great joy, and I enjoyed the job very much. I even enjoyed the give and take of battling Congress, including Tip O'Neill. Over the years, President Reagan even sent birthday greetings to his friend. On March 17, 1986, Tip O'Neill said, The president and I oftentimes don't see eye to eye. We have our uh, little squabbles, 
But when he calls midnight, he says, is it six o'clock? Can we talk to friendly? Sure, absolutely. So we stop. We swap an Irish story or two. Mr. President, you know, we have different in philosophy. But I want to tell you how much I admire your ability, your talent, the way you handle the American people, the love that the American people have for you, and your leadership, even though I have opposed it. But in addition to celebrating a, a country and a personal friendship, I wanted to come here tonight to join you in saluting Tip O'Neill, to salute him for the years of dedication and devotion to country. Tip's recollections of politics go back, of course, far beyond my own. He's, uh, <laughs> he's seen some who play the game well and others who do not. He's seen some who love politics and some who came to it only out of a sense of duty. But through it all, Tip has been a vital and forceful part of America's political tradition, a tradition that he has truly enriched. Tip, you are a true son of Boston College, and we salute you. You are also a leader of the nation, and for that, we honor you. But you also embody so much of what this nation is all about, the hope that is America. So you make us proud as well, my friend. You make us proud. Thank you. God bless you. Our next segment focuses on one particular member of the leadership team, the aptly named Whip. For this segment, Bob Sharp interviews Dr. Jack Miller of Portland State University about this key position in congressional leadership. Thank you for sitting down with me today, Dr. Miller. Nice to talk to you, Bob. You look great. Thank you. You as well. I must say, you also look quite intelligent with your beard trimmed that way. Come on now, Bob. Yes, well, I'd like to talk to you today about the job of the Congressional Whip, a topic about which I'm sure you're extremely well informed. I see what you're doing there, Bob. You're flattering me just the way a whip might flatter a member of Congress. Nice object lesson there, and very appropriate to our topic. Very insightful of you to notice, Dr. Miller. Okay, enough is enough, Bob. I get it. The listeners get it. But yes, flattery is one of the many tools a good whip will deploy to do the job. And what exactly is the job of the whip? It's actually pretty much exactly what it sounds like, to whip members into voting the right way. The whip is the member of the leadership team who does the vote counting on a piece of legislation, who figures out how far above and below the magic number they are, and strategizes about what needs to be done, what can be done to get the votes lined up the way they need to be lined up. You said how far above, correct? It seems like the whip wouldn't have much to do if the party has enough votes to get a majority. Actually, there are all kinds of considerations beyond getting the 50% plus one votes needed to pass a bill. There are considerations of unity, for example. There are considerations of unity, for example, as well as the re-election of incumbent members. The leadership team doesn't just want to pass bills while it has the chance. It also wants to do whatever possible to ensure a majority in future sessions of Congress. And that means paying close attention to potentially vulnerable members, doing whatever possible to ensure that their next campaign is the successful one. The whip is the leader charged with keeping an eye on these considerations in addition to passing bills. Sometimes the whip's job is to release party members from voting yes on a piece of legislation that the leadership team wants to pass because that particular bill might play poorly back home with the voters. The whip obviously can't let too many members off the hook for tough votes because that risks passage and it might make the party as a whole look disunified. So it's a pretty delicate job, actually, requiring the ability to balance various considerations, to influence members in subtle ways, and to be tough at times when party loyalty is necessary. So okay, it's a complex task, even if all the votes are there. Let's take a straightforward case, though. Where the initial whip count falls short of a majority, what does the whip do then? Yeah, no, that is the paradigm case of the whip's job, whipping the votes when they're not there. Flattery, which you demonstrated earlier, is definitely one of the tools. Politicians have big egos, so flattery is a pretty potent tool. 
Say a member tells the WHIP they don't want to vote yes on the upcoming budget bill because there's not enough spending in it for the kind of social programs that their progressive constituents demand, and it's going to kill them next cycle, maybe even lead to a primary challenge from the left. The WHIP might say something like, you're a tough enough campaigner that you can make this work back home. I'm sure of it. Another tool that will likely be used in a case like this is campaign funding. The leadership teams control various campaign groups and political action committees, and one thing a whip can add to flattery is a promise of significant financial support for a tough re-election fight. That's a nice carrot that works as a stick, too. Members who vote against the party too much should expect reduced access to these kinds of funds, and it's the whip's job to remind members of this possibility. There's also strategic help. The whip is always a very experienced, very successful campaigner who can offer advice on taking an unpopular vote in Congress back home to their district and turning it into a positive. And sometimes the whip simply has to say, we need this vote, we need this bill, or the public is going to punish us next cycle, so you gotta be a good team player here, or we're sunk. You might win re-election, but we'll be in the minority, and you remember how not fun that is, right? That all sounds very difficult and time-consuming, particularly in the House, where you might be dealing with over 200 people. Why would anyone want such an arduous job? Ambition, pure and simple. The whip is near the top of the congressional leadership, and it's often a pathway to Speaker of the House or Senate Majority Leader. Kevin McCarthy was a whip before becoming speaker, so was Nancy Pelosi, Dennis Hastert, Nancy Pelosi's predecessor, he was a deputy whip, his predecessor Newt Gingrich was a whip, Tom Foley, Tip O'Neill, whips. It's not a strict straight up the chain command hierarchy. Paul Ryan and John Boehner were never whips, but it's a definite pathway. Chuck Schumer, the president Senate majority leader, was never a whip, but Mitch McConnell was. Harry Reid, the previous Democratic majority leader, was a whip. Trent Lott was a whip. So how does one become the whip? Well, like all leadership positions, the whip is elected by the membership of each chamber's party caucus, so it's a democratically chosen position, and as such, requires politicking. Just like getting chosen speaker or majority leader, what you have to do is get most of the members of your party who have votes in the House or Senate to support you, so you're politicking politicians. And the way you do that is by helping them do what they want to do, which is get re-elected and re-elected and re-elected. One of the reasons why WHIP is such a common pathway to the top job is that the Speaker and Senate Majority Leader are people who have helped fundraise for a lot of their members, have given them advice, have been important in their re-election efforts in various ways, often helped recruit them into running for their seats in the first place. Politicians have big egos, but they're also loyal. People who've been good to them, they support. So that's what aspiring whips do. They help their fellow members prosper politically, thereby winning their support for leadership elections. And then to keep their position or move up, they have to keep doing it. So it's not just an exhausting job to do, complex and wide-ranging and never-ending. It's an exhausting job to keep. Thank you so much for enlightening me, Dr. Miller, and enlightening our listeners. You still look amazing, and that's not flattery. That's just the truth. Thanks, Bob. I really uh, don't believe you. That's it for episode five of Two Ring Circus. Next time, we'll look at different influences beyond the leadership teams in our episode on elbow twisting, log rolling, lobbying, and legislative success. 